1: Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast delving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. And without further ado, Let's dive into today's episode, The Six Assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Part Two. Good Friday, April 14th, 1865. Lincoln attends a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Waiting at a saloon next door, John Wilkes Booth, a famous actor and Confederate sympathizer. At 10.10 10 p.m., Booth enters the theater, utilizing his fame to get the doorman to let him into the hallway that leads to Lincoln's private box. There's no guard, and at 10-14, Timed to the funniest line in the play, just as Booth planned, Booth bursts inside and shoots Lincoln in the back of the head, with a 45 caliber single shot Derringer pistol. Major Henry Rathbone, in the presidential box with Lincoln and their wives, bolts up and lunges at Booth, who draws a knife and stabs Rathbone, before leaping out of the president's box down onto the stage, over 10 feet below. His foot catching on a US flag as he lands poorly, possibly breaking a bone in his leg, and turning, he raises a bloodied knife, shouting, Sic Semper Tyrannis! Latin for, thus always to tyrants, a line attributed to Brutus at Caesar's assassination. Some saying that he added the words, I have done it, the South is avenged, before darting off towards the exit. Chaos unfolding as Mrs. Lincoln yells, they have shot the president, they have shot the president! It becoming absolutely clear that this wasn't part of the act. Booth rushes to the exit, stabbing an orchestra leader as he darts into the alley, leaping onto a horse that's held waiting for him as he rides off into the night, becoming the most wanted man in America, and the first in the history of its nation to assassinate a president. Dramatic moments at the Ford's Theatre.
2: Yes, very dramatic. I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, history about it, and a lot of documents and documentaries and films and reacting... But still, there's um, there's a couple of questions I always have in mind: is Did he act alone? Did he do it in uh, knowing what kind of reward was waiting for him in the other side of it?
1: Well, his motivation was always the the biggest question mark in in the whole circumstances surrounding this. So, I guess we'll dive in and find out what we what we'll find out. Yes. We'll begin, as we always do, with a bit of background. This is part two of The Six Assassinations of Abraham Lincoln. Check out part one if you missed it. And for a quick recap, we covered four different plots. The Boston plot, to mob and stab Lincoln in Boston on his way to inauguration. The Confederate sniper fire that nearly ended Lincoln outside Washington. Lincoln's ride to Soldier's Home, where gunfire came a hair's breadth away from ending him, eliminating his hat instead, And, finally, the doctor's plot by the yellow fever fiend himself to inflict Lincoln with yellow fever through contaminated fancy shirts delivered to him. Lincoln survived all four attempts on his life as president of the non-United States of America, and now in his second four-year term, he continued to lead the Union against the breakaway Confederate States during the Civil War, now in its fourth year, but seeming to be drawing to a close, with the Union Army's final victory over the Confederates appearing imminent and their surrender inevitable. There were four rather different plots, and we have two more to cover in this episode, which leads us to the fifth plot, the plot to plant explosives in the White House. Approved by Southern President Jefferson Davis himself, Lincoln and his entire cabinet were scheduled to meet at the White House on April 10th in 1865. The plan was to sneak in, possibly through the basement, and plant a bomb below the cabinet meeting, Then, of course, it would go off, collapse the floor, and send shrapnel everywhere, killing the men above. The White House at the time was guarded, but accessible to the public during the war. See, the public at that time could walk in and demand to speak to Lincoln, sometimes even getting an audience. As we know, the president was quite lax in security. It seems unheard of now to think about having such access to a political leader, right? Yes. Early in April, Sergeant Thomas Haney of the Confederate Torpedo Bureau, kind of like the Confederate's uh, demolition secret service kind of thing, was uh, ordered to commit this plan. There was also a distraction meant to be caused by John S. Mosby's cavalry troop, who were tasked with causing a ruckus, distracting the Union troops so that they would focus on them. However, en route to complete the task, as Sergeant Thomas Haney and his guide crept through the trees looking to cross the Potomac River... By chance, a Union cavalry scouting party observed them and apprehended them, a mere 15 miles away from their target, and still on Virginia's side of the Potomac. Some sources say that there was a larger skirmish involved with Mosby's troops. A day later, on April 9th, General Lee surrendered to the Union army. And that was it. A chance encounter, Union soldiers, finding these guys skulking through the woods with a bunch of explosives... And they apprehended them.
2: Well, I think this plot is a much more interesting one from the point of view of the objective of what they tried to do and what it meant for the completion of the the civil war. First of all, you see it's orchestrated by the highest echelon of the Confederate, you would say army or government or leadership. They, They decided that's what they wanted to do. It was a last bid to try and change the outcome of the war. They were going against the president, but they were not, you no, know, we're not going against only the president. It was the whole it was like the symbol, not only him, it was getting rid of everybody that they could in one go. And it was much more dangerous if it would have happened because it would have put everything in chaos. So it's
1: like Guy Fox blowing up the parliament, you know, in the UK.
2: With all the other ones, it was like individuals, it was more amateurish. First of all, you're looking at it as a plot of the idea. This is going into the White House. They have the right people, they want to do it, they, they have a plan. But The fact is that in the end, it wasn't executed because they were caught. And as you said, the day after he resigned or surrendered, sorry. Just to think about it now, I think it's crazy. How would you think to do it? But I suppose in those days, no one had thought that someone would want to blow up the, the White House and kill the president. Or assassinate
1: the president. And again, you know, Lincoln refusing to believe that he could be a target of assassination. Still, he's lax in his security, White House open right during the war, and he even takes some of these audiences. I-
2: and the fact that they thought they could do the job shows that it was possible. So someone was able to look at the place, know he can plant the, the explosives, they did a reconnaissance, and had information, enough information to bring it up and say it is it's a, it's a possibility to do. It's a viable plan, but it doesn't say anything about getting out of there afterwards or anything about that, but that's that wasn't the plot here. Blowing up everyone the way it did would have completely... Uh, changed the whole It's the an interesting question.
1: I wonder if this was more thought of as a suicide kind of mission, that you know, not thinking so much about getting out, but just doing it. Well, it depends
2: if you want to be there to make sure it does blow up everything or the guy stays there or he, who knows. Well, it didn't work. <laughs> it they, did not work. And again, luck played a little part it. Only, only in Hollywood films you f- find that the White House was blown up.
1: <laughs> yes, I suppose. Independence Day, there was that yes. scene.
2: Okay, that brings us to the last attempt.
1: John Wilkes Booth a yep. name that will live on in infamy yes never since has anyone been named john such a name has never been used
2: I thought they use it for, for outposts or out, uh, uh,
1: outposts <laughs> outhouses, outhouses i believe houses? you mean yes the john yeah i think
2: that's more of a british
1: thing yes it is calling a toilet a john <laughs> which leads us to the sixth plot the one that succeeded yes with john wilkes booth yes when booth was a child he was in the forest with his sister and they came across a romani fortune teller and something happened that booth never forgot writing down the fortune that he was told ah, you've a bad hand the lines all crisscross it's full enough of sorrow full of trouble trouble and plenty everywhere i look you'll break hearts there'll be nothing to you you'll die young And leave many to mourn you, many to love you, too. But you'll be rich, generous, and free with your money. You're born under an unlucky star. You've got in your hand a thundering crowd of enemies. Not one friend. You'll make a bad end. You'll have a fast life, short, but a grand one. I've never seen a worse hand, and I wish I hadn't seen it. But every word I've told is true by the signs. You'd best turn a missionary or a priest and try to escape it.
2: Quite alarming for a young chap to hear that from someone.
1: I don't remember exactly how old he was, 11, 12, 13, 14, something wrong around there. But this clearly had a profound effect on him. He wrote it down, he kept it in his pocket, and it sort of wore, wore away, as his sister later recalled in a book she wrote about her brother. Well, um, that's
2: why you shouldn't walk in the forest alone and shouldn't approach... Strangers, as your parents tell you. Yes, yes. You never know what turns up. The big bad wolf. Exactly. A fortune that was prophetic.
1: It came true. Yes. But was it because the fortune was read to him that he lived a life in that way? Or who knows? Booth was a successful actor from an acting family. His father was a famous actor, and his brothers, too, were famous. Booth performed in 83 plays throughout his career, and he said of all of the Shakespearean characters that he had played, his favorite was Brutus, the slayer of a tyrant in Julius Caesar. Some critics called Booth the handsomest man in America, describing him as a muscular, perfect man with curling hair, his stage performances acrobatic and intensely physical, leaping on stage and gesturing with passion. Some even saying that he was the most promising young actor on the American stage, receiving fan mail daily from infatuated women. Booth became very wealthy, and as the 1840s passed, he was earning around $20,000 a year, uh, over half a million dollars a year, which,
2: you know, it's pretty, pretty good living. Half a million dollars these days.
1: Yeah, roughly equivalent to yes. about $600,000 in today's um, standards. And that's in the, the 50s. Yes. The Civil War broke out in the 60s and yes. he was still acting. So he was a successful, well-regarded actor. And actually his elder brother was even considered more successful, though Booth was considered the more dashing of the two, he was strongly opposed to abolition, and the abolitionists who sought to end slavery. He even attended a hanging of a famous abolitionist leader named John Brown on December 2nd of 1859. He gained access that the public would not be able to have by wearing a borrowed uniform of the Richmond Grays, a volunteer Confederate unit. And when Brown was hanged without incident, Booth stood stoically by the scaffolding, satisfied with Brown's fate, although he did admire his bravery facing death stoically. Interesting that This was the start of kind of recorded events of him kind of
2: breaking the law and using his skills. When people have a lot of influence and think they can get away with things, then sometimes they take the law into their own hands. And that's exactly what happened here.
1: When the Civil War broke out, Booth State of Maryland voted to stay with the Union, but it didn't want to involve itself with the war itself. It didn't want to allow troop movements or operations of troops within the state. And it also wanted the troops removed from the state, which would leave D.C., Washington, D.C., exposed. Now, Lincoln couldn't have this, of course, because you can just march right in. And uh, so he actually imposed martial law in Maryland, which uh, Booth and other Marylandians, Marylandians, I don't know, Booth and other people from Maryland uh, were aghast at. Deeming Lincoln's actions unconstitutional, Booth himself feeling that Lincoln was a tyrant, which is a growing trend that would continue to build within Booth. This idea that Lincoln was a tyrant. Yes. Lincoln was like Caesar. He is like Brutus. A trend that he and sees. And history would look at him in a favorable way. Exactly, exactly. Even though history doesn't look at Brutus no. favorably, uh, which is and kind of...
2: But playing Brutus, you feel like he is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it's a weird way. History... Doesn't look at Brutus unfavorably, but it doesn't look at him. I don't know. What does history look at Brutus at?
2: We'll have to do something about Julius Caesar. And
1: Julius Brutus. Caesar's an interesting one. We will definitely explore that. Yes. Performing in the South, Booth would smuggle anti-malarial drugs there because uh, the South was in short supply due to blockades. So he was already doing kind of illicit activity and utilizing his fame and position to help the South.
2: I mean, you'd think that
1: you'd eventually build up a profile on him based on all the stuff that he's doing.
2: We have to remember again the times. And we have to remember that there was no real agency that collected information on people or looked at people as uh, as enemies of the nation. There were so many things, other things going on. It's a war. It's a and, lot going on. You can't pay of, attention a, to some actor. Uh, there were so many people who were against what was going on that, it was nearly impossible just to keep track on every them and and just decide that this guy who was saying something is more dangerous than another guy who was saying something there was no place or an institute that information was brought to it and someone had to analyze it and say yeah because ah. there was no federal agency there to was do nothing that. at the time so anybody could say something people anybody could say he wants to do something and there was no consequences unless there was something very concrete And in this case, a lot of people were saying.
1: Yeah. Well, he did have some consequences later, which we'll get to in a minute. Yes. So uh, a family friend of, of Booth opened in Washington, D.C., the John T. Ford Theater, or the Ford Theater, as it was known. They opened the theater on November 9th, 1861. And Booth was actually one of the first leading men to appear on that stage, portraying a Greek sculptor making statues come to life. Lincoln, in fact, came and saw this play the same theater where later he would be killed in. Uh, Lincoln watched the play from his box, that very same one, and at one point during the performance, Booth is said to have shaken his finger towards Lincoln and uh, delivered his dialogue. Lincoln's sister-in-law, who was with him at the time, telling Lincoln, Mr. Lincoln, he looks as if he meant that for you. The president responding, He does look pretty sharp at me, doesn't he? Lincoln, however, admired Booth. He was a great actor, a very charming uh, guy, and on several occasions invited him to meet him. On all those occasions, Booth refused. And again, I'm sure because he admired Booth, he must have known that Booth had some vocal sentiments perhaps against the Union and he maybe wanted to persuade him. He admired him as an actor, didn't think he was going to do anything. Maybe he thought, if I could meet him, I like him, show him that I'm a good guy, and maybe explain things to him. Maybe that was his intentions. And just to note that Booth's family was were not all Confederates. It was very split. You know, his brother was a stern Unionist and all this different stuff. So it wasn't like the whole family was was Confederate sympathizers.
2: Well, it, it was like a normal family. You have people who support one side and one other support the other side, but... To think that one of them will then decide to assassinate the president, I think that was very far-fetched at that time. On April 12th, 1861, the Civil War began. Booth
1: was starring in New York at the time, and he was very outspoken in his public admiration for the South seceding, calling it heroic, which enraged the locals, who demanded he be banned from the stage for treasonable statements. The drama critics were kinder and gave him rave reviews. Booth promised his mother that he wouldn't enlist, but he became frustrated eventually at not fighting for the South, writing to her that I have begun to deem myself a coward and to despise my own existence. Early in 1863, Booth was arrested in St. Louis on tour because he was heard saying that I wish the president and the whole damn government would go to hell. He was charged for making treasonous remarks against the government, but was released after he took an oath of allegiance to the Union and paid a substantial fine. Again, Building up a profile, right? Here's a guy, again, doing this, doing that. In modern terms, there would be a file on this guy.
2: Yes, but who keeps the files in those days? There was no agency to do that. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I I like that he paid a substantial fine. I'm sure that was helpful. He could afford it. Yeah, I'm sure that was helpful. Here's what's interesting. Before Booth planned to kill Lincoln, he had a whole plan to kidnap him. In 1864, the plan began. The Confederates were starting to lose, and Lincoln's re-election enraged Booth, who began formulating this plan to kidnap Lincoln from the old soldier's home. Yep, that very same one that uh, Lincoln would often ride alone to. You think he knew the
2: old soldier's home? He had some history about it?
1: Well, I think during this kidnapping plot, he learned about the old soldier's home and learned about Lincoln's uh, travels there. And perhaps later, he may have been responsible for a gunshot. That's just my theory, which we'll get to later. But uh, for now, let's talk about kidnapping. So their plan was to smuggle Lincoln into Virginia. Once in Confederate hands, they would exchange him for army prisoners of war, Booth thinking that uh, that would bring the war to an end by emboldening the opposition to war in the North, and uh, it would force the Union to recognize the Confederate government. So the idea was to uh, just kind of grab him on his way to the old soldier's home because he would often ride that way. He recruited two friends as accomplices, and they would meet often at houses of Confederate sympathizers in Baltimore. They also met with several well-known sympathizers at the Parker House in Boston. Again, well-known sympathizers meeting in well-known sympathizer hotspots. If there was a federal agency, you'd have a guy sitting there, listening, being aware, keyed
2: in. It's crazy to me that they didn't have any of this. It is upsetting, you know, even upsetting. But you have to remember the times. That's what it was. No one thought of this. Look, even if, imagine that there was someone. You think all the information was gathered in one place. It was no computers. It was a piece of paper with a report that was sent to someone who was supposed to read it and put it in a file that maybe just he saw it, but how many papers came to him, if any? So even if there was people giving reports about these things happening, those days, systems were so difficult to have a possibility to really respond quickly to anything Mm. that came up. Right. In October, Booth
1: takes an unexplained trip to Montreal, the center of clandestine Confederate activity, and he was 10 days in the city, staying for a time at the St. Lawrence Hall, which again was a rendezvous spot for the Confederate Secret Service. There, he met with several Confederate agents... There is no conclusive proof of links between Booth's plan to kidnap Lincoln and the higher-ups with the Confederate Secret Service, but it's highly unlikely that the field agents or lower-downs weren't aware of Booth and his intentions, whether they deemed them
2: serious or not, questionable, but they certainly must have known about his plans. Look, it's, it's the second time or third time now we've seen Canada come up with, uh, with these connections and these and this connect, with this, uh, assassination plots. I'm I'm sure that now we know about it, but I'm sure even then there was someone that would have known about it and understand that they have to have someone on the ground to tell you what's going on. In today's world, you would have Done much more to find out exactly who goes there, who are the connections, who are the contacts. Not talking about the technical aids that can help you there. But you, could mole, you could have a mall, You could have a double so agent. Things. Yeah. I mean, you can't stop it. I don't say go to the Canadian government and stop it. Maybe sometimes it's better to have this thing. Sometimes then you want them inclined. to be speaking freely exactly. there, so you and can then find then out see what's who going goes on. there and what's going on. So that's that's a nice thing. But if you know it and you do nothing about it, that's a double crime.
1: Yeah. But again, it just goes back to me of this kind of shock. Like these are known spots. They know they go to Canada. They know they now you have Booth, who's already been on a list or should have been yes. on a list, traveling to a place that is a hot spot. That just to me it it feels crazy. But again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes. So certainly in today's world, he would be flagged, and if he flies to a certain place, that would be flagged, it's it's like, digitized. It's like someone and, is a
2: radical Islam um, a supporter and. There's a certain mosque that you know is where everybody goes to the extremists. Obviously, you want to have it covered, even if it's not in your country. You want to know who goes there from your own nationals. And you can get it closed, yes. Uh, you probably would like to prefer that than to have people spread the hatred around. Or but keep
1: it open and have information about exactly, what's going to happen. or have
2: agents inside. So that would be like the equivalent today to what, mm-hmm. what you see in, in today's world of, of these sort of things. Right. Again, talking about extreme um, uh, situations, not normal. Correct. Praying place. And this
1: was a wartime, so your resources are maybe yes. diverted to other things. What we do know is that when Booth returned from Canada, he was reinvigorated and increased his energy and expenses on the plot. He assembled a loose knit band of Southern sympathizers with the following three names that you probably should try to remember David Harold, George Atzerod and Lewis Powell. There were, of course, others, but those three are the more important for now. These Southern sympathizers, again, would routinely meet and make their plans. Booth is said to have said of Lincoln, that man's appearance, his presence, his coarse, low jokes and anecdotes, his vulgar smiles and his policy are a disgrace to the seat he holds. He is made the tool of the North to crush out slavery. And on his election, Booth was said to have commented, he is making himself a king. I allude to these particular quotes because, again, I'm drawing this comparison which I think he would be very happy to draw himself. Brutus, Caesar, kingship from a republic, striking down a tyrant. I think Booth got it in his mind, you know, that this is what he's going to be doing. Booth even attended Lincoln's second inauguration on March 4th, saying afterwards, I had an excellent chance to kill the president if I had wished. At that point, he did not have that wish. But on March 17th, an opportunity presented itself. Booth learned that Lincoln will attend a performance at a hospital near the old soldier's home. He got his team ready on a stretch of road near the old soldier's home in hopes of kidnapping Lincoln en route. I wonder where that might have been, hiding a group of people on the route that Lincoln might have taken. I have no clue. But Lincoln doesn't appear. Booth later learning that he changed his plans at the last moment to attend a reception at the National Hotel in Washington, which was incidentally exactly where booth was staying what's very interesting about this is this incident occurs before the august gunshot that nearly killed lincoln on his journey to the old soldier's home i have a theory of course it's just my theory that maybe booth was the one who shot at lincoln it's entirely plausible forever will be unknown but entirely plausible that having known this plan having known the place to hide he might have been there later when he ditches the kidnapping effort. And well, you know, it would have been
2: interesting if they would have done a ballistic report on the hat and on the one that killed uh, Lincoln. Then mm-hmm. if it's the same kind of gun or pistol, maybe. Booth was known to
1: be a good shot. He actually had a great love of weapons. So who knows? I suppose uh, I think Lincoln and the soldier kind of thought it was a rifle shot. Uh, but again, it was yeah. close range, and Booth later shot him with a pistol, single shot. So, I don't know. My theory is that um, maybe that gunshot in the woods was Booth. Now, maybe he tried to actually kill him, or maybe it was a warning, or who knows. But that's my theory. That's your theory. Do okay. you have a theory?
2: No. No theory. I, I don't think it's the same person, but... You don't like to, to speculate. No. Okay. It's too far-fetched nice but too far-fetched all
1: right on april 12th 1865 a year after the failed kidnapping plot robert e lee surrenders effectively ending the war booth says he is done with the stage and that the only play he now wants to do is one called venice preserved about an assassination plot the kidnap is no longer feasible and the plans shift to assassination booth hears an impromptu speech delivered by lincoln promising suffrage to former slaves. And later, Booth is said to have told a friend that will be the last speech that Lincoln will ever
2: make. Again, he's pretty open about his intentions to many people. Yes, the question is if these people after reported it after the effect, what happened to those people? Hindsight. Just,
1: yeah. Yeah. On the morning of April 14th, the morning of Lincoln's death, Booth gets mail from the Ford Theater and learns that Lincoln will attend that night along with General Grant and both their wives. Immediately, he sets a plan in motion. He arranges for a horse to escape with, and at 8.45 p.m., Booth tells Powell, Harold, and Azerod of his plan to kill Lincoln. Remember, those are the three guys we told you to remember. He also comes up with another plan. He assigns Powell to assassinate Secretary of State William H. Seward, Azerod to assassinate the Vice President and Harold to assist in their escape to Virginia. His thinking was he would eliminate the three most important officials in the U.S. government, bringing it to its knees.
2: Quite a bold plan. Yes, you know, you have an opportunity and you want to get rid of uh, the leadership. That's what you do. So A coordinated strike. You know, if you look at uh, number five and number six plots, they're not only for the president, they're to, for, the, for, for a much bigger cause. For the whole, whole, yes. for the whole group.
0: Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: We are back from a quick little interlude because there was a little phone call that my dad had to take to deal with um, probably something to do with laundry, right? Laundry, right? Which detergent? Cleaners, i tell you. Cleaners. They just don't know what to do. Anyway, in Booth's favor was the fact that Grant and uh, his wife didn't attend that night because Grant's wife didn't get along with Mrs. Lincoln. Grant later uh, saying that he wished he was there, of course, and that he believed that if he was there, he could have prevented the event from occurring. You know, Grant is uh, Ulysses S. Grant. He was the general, the head commander of the Union Army. Though, who knows, because he was an on-and-off again drunk. So maybe maybe he would have been drunk. Who, Who knows? And of course, there was a general there anyway, a different commander who... Tried to prevent the actions, but of course, one regrets not being able to do something. Also, Lincoln's regular bodyguard was off-duty. At this point, they had begun giving him uh, a bodyguard, but he was off-duty that night. And his friend, Lemon, our good old friend Lemon, uh, was away. He was away on assignment, so they hired a local police officer instead. This local police officer, in fact, was late in relieving the duties of the regular bodyguard who was then going off duty, and this local police officer had a record of misconduct and 14 disciplinary infractions against him. He also left at intermission to get drunk and never returned, claiming later that Lincoln dismissed him and, as you might have guessed, the charges against him were dropped and never followed up on. This police officer, by the way, was eventually fired for sleeping on the job. So not the best person to give the task of protecting the president.
2: Yes, but you have to remember the times and remember that every day he went out and did things. So there was always probably people changing and uh, finding new people. And they didn't have anything as well. If you look at it, did they have any threats?
1: Well, this was also Lee had surrendered, so it was celebratory. The war was over, so it was like, that's why they were going to the theater even. Lincoln woke up that morning feeling great and happier than he had been in years, and everyone said so. So it was a very optimistic, good feelings all about, except for that dream that he told Lemon, if you remember, three days previously from part one. Lincoln's wife even actually developed a headache before the show and was inclined to stay home. Lincoln saying that he must attend because the newspapers announced that he would there goes old Honest Abe again. Yes. If only, right? These moments, these little decisions. So, Lincoln attends the theater, and the fateful moments arrive, as narrated in the opening segment. Booth, dressed impeccably, gains admittance, there's no guards. He even braces the door with a stick he brought with him, keeping it shut. And as a thunderous laughter roars from the audience during the funniest line of the play, one he had planned perfectly for, bang. He kills a president and leaps to his escape. Six semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. As Lincoln was bleeding in the box, a doctor in the audience leapt up and immediately started treating him. And they found that his situation was very, very bad. Eventually, they transferred him a little bit later across the street to a place called the Peterson House. And the following day, at 7.22 a.m., Abraham Lincoln died. He was the first U.S. president to be assassinated. And the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, pronounced the famous words, Now, he belongs to the ages. Or, as some heard him say, Now, he belongs to the angels. I didn't know that came from here, but I have heard that phrase before. So, um, beautiful. Yes. Beautiful words. Booth was the only assassin to succeed. However, Powell stabbed the Secretary of State Stewart in a bloody affair that left many wounded, and uh, Stewart was seriously wounded himself. But he did survive. Atzerold, on the other hand, lost his nerve and spent the night drinking, never even attempting to kill the Vice President. So, all in all, not the most effective assassination attempt
2: of all three. Well, they did get the the main guy, and the one that actually did it was the one that was the most committed. Again, going back to the first episode about assigning someone to kill the president and how you couldn't only depend on one person, therefore you had to de- depend on a number of people so at least one of them will do the job. So it just shows you the trust they had about performing and and actually executing the the job that's really a horrendous piece of work absolutely and and Powell's attempt to kill the Secretary of State was really a
1: brutal, bloody affair. And the Secretary of State really only survived because he had actually had a carriage injury the night before or the day before or something and was wearing a neck brace. And so when he was stabbed with a knife by Powell, the neck brace actually apparently saved his life. It was really very, uh, a very brutal affair. Very odd. Booth dashed across town and approached the Navy
2: Yard Bridge leading over the Potomac to Maryland. Just, just before you talk about him escaping, because that's very interesting. You would think that after he did the the shooting, he would want to get away as quick as possible. Why not leave the same way he went in? Why leap on stage and say what he had to say? Yes, you could say he wanted to make a point, but what was more important, making a point or escaping? And he had so much planned and prepared for the escape, and it's a big risk to jump over where he did and then to say what he wanted to say, a one-liner, basically, and then disappear where everybody can try and get hold of him or catch him. If he would have left the other way... Well,
1: he bolted the door, and Rathbone was there fighting him. So I think it made sense to, to go down on the stage. Also, he was known for his athleticism and physical prowess. He knew the backstage route. There'd be fewer people backstage. If he tried to go out through the corridor, down the stairs, because the president's box is upstairs, and then through the entrance. By the time he got to the entrance, there'd be the people, the doorman, there would be the ticket guy, maybe people from the audience would already be rushing out. Yeah, but no one would have known that it in was the streets. him if he was...
2: He would, maybe, he but of course him, he wanted the... hands, f- people didn't know, yeah. he run out. I mean, here straight down onto the main stage. Everybody can see him, is
1: identified. Well, people didn't know it was a, an assassination until Mrs. Lincoln shouted out. And he wanted, of course, to be dramatic. Let's not forget, he's an actor. He thought himself uh, a slaying
2: a tyrant. And he wanted to be known. He wanted people to know it was him. Exactly. And I think that's the point I wanted to emphasize, that for him, the killing wasn't enough. It wasn't the main thing he wanted to do. He wanted to make a point. He wanted to be known that it was him. He wanted to be known that he did an act that he thought was the right thing to do. A just act. Yes. And I think that is uh, something that, you know, sometimes you get these people who who have this vision that, or idea ideas what they want to do, and it just takes them to different places.
1: One of the theories of why he did this is, too, you know, because he felt like he was in the shadow of his father and his brother, and he wanted to be the most famous and and that kind of thing. So,
2: Yeah. One of the motivators. And then, and of course, you said he was athletic, but look, he landed on, 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 on the American flag and... He
1: tripped. Yeah. Well, Rathbone was grabbing at it, and yes. There was a struggle. So still, it's tough. Yes, it is. Tough. Not easy. Not easy. So as Booth approached the Navy Yard Bridge leading over the Potomac to Maryland, he was questioned by a sentry. It was, after all, after curfew. But Booth said that he was going home to my residence close to Beantown, and he was allowed to pass. He reaches Maryland and there he meets his fellow conspirator, Harold. They stop at a tavern to get prearranged supplies and weapons that they had stashed there for the kidnapping thing earlier. Then they're back on the road, reaching a doctor named Dr. Mudd, Double D. He's a small-time physician sympathetic to the Confederacy, and he sets Booth's leg. And once strong enough, they head out again, but get lost in a swamp, paying a farmer to guide them to another sympathizer, who is wary and sends them off into the woods
2: themselves. But do you think at that time everybody knew that what had happened? No. Well, I'm... Because there's no... Was it like on radio? Well, I'm I'm no. fast
1: forwarding a little bit because yeah. this didn't all happen in, in one yeah. night when yeah. they go out and then the doctor and the setting the leg and then they they stayed there a couple nights and they went through, you know, so it, it took a little bit of time for them to get to the sympathizer who was wary. Why was he wary? Well, a bounty was put on these guys' heads. It became very quickly known... That Booth did it, of course. He was a famous actor. And so a $100,000 bounty, about $1.5 million today, um, was put on his head. And one of the largest manhunts in the history of the United States was organized. 10,000 troops, detectives and police were all looking for Booth and Harold, who at this point were hiding among pine trees for days where a friend of that wary sympathizer would bring them supplies and newspapers which were full of the actions of Booth. Booth learning that he was almost universally condemned. Thousands attended Lincoln's funeral, Lincoln today being considered one of the finest presidents in the history of the United States of America. There was mass public mourning, as rightly there yes. would be. Yes. Even in the South, people um, lamented this. So Booth was not very popular. No, and he thought he would be. He, he thought, thought he it. would be. Yes. The San Francisco Chronicle editorialized the following words. Booth has simply carried out what secessionist politicians and journalists have been for years expressing in words, who have denounced the president as a tyrant, a despot, a usurper, hinted at, and
2: virtually recommended. Well, talking about media responsibility. Exactly. That's why it's very, very important and very dangerous what media writes and what politicians say, because they inspire individuals to act, lone wolves sometimes to act, and they might say, well, I didn't say to do that, and I didn't think that that it will lead to that, but you have responsibilities, and unfortunately, even today in many modern countries and democracies, free media and free speech sometimes can bring people to do acts that uh, afterwards are regrettable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that this could be taken out of a newspaper today. Exactly. You know, this critique of the media. There are many countries
2: that I can think of that if you can apply to them today.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's frightening. Yes. Reading all these articles and condemnations of his actions, Booth wrote in his journal on April 21st, For six months, we had worked to capture, but our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done. I struck boldly, and not as the papers say. I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. Later, he wrote, With every man's hand against me, I'm here in despair. And why? For doing what Brutus was honored for. And yet I, for striking down a greater tyrant than they ever knew, am looked upon as a common cutthroat. Again, he thinks of himself as Brutus taking down the tyrant Caesar. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's living in a play. He's living in a play, in a dramatic world. Yes. Where he had a prophecy as a child that he must fulfill. Yes. Interesting.
2: Never go to the
1: woods alone. (laughs) Uh, Booth and Harold eventually set out by river on canoe and get lost in a fog trying to reach virginia which they don't end up doing they wind up back in maryland they try again to head out and this time the fog helps them uh, sneak past a union boat unseen eventually landing in virginia they move unwanted from one place to another place each sympathizer kind of turning them away not wanting to be involved anymore so they continue and eventually finally find refuge at a farm booth pretending to be a wounded soldier there and convincing the farm owner to let them stay But after one night, the farmer becomes suspicious and asks Booth and Harold to sleep in the barn, secretly locking it, thinking that they're horse thieves, afraid that they're going to steal the horses at night. Meanwhile, soldiers have managed to track Booth down to this farm, seeing as they were tipped off by a man who had previously smuggled Booth and Harold around. When they get to the farm, they surround it and call out to Booth, who refuses to surrender. In fact, he offers to duel the captain for his freedom, again with his theatrics. Yes. Harold does surrender, and the soldiers then go about setting the barn on fire. Booth rushes out, is shot in the neck, even though the orders were to take him alive, and he dies three hours later. His last words, apparently, were, Tell my mother I died for my country. And, after asking to have his hands held up so he could see them, he said, Useless. Useless. Before passing away. There are some rumors that he survived this, and it was someone else there, and that he lived another day, but... These have pretty much all been debunked. Uh, Booth's diary, discovered later, had this portion, which Booth wrote about Lincoln. Our country owed all her trouble to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. The majority of Northerners viewed Booth as a madman and a monster who murdered the savior of the Union. In the South, many cursed Booth for bringing the revenge of the North against them thinking that Lincoln would have been much more for reconciliation and with his death, vengeance would rain down on them. So uh, not not a good PR for Booth at that point. The war was already lost and it was deemed a futile act. All the conspirators involved in the plot this time were tried and found guilty after seven weeks of trial, which was a long time back then. Four of them even sentenced to death by hanging. Someone like the Dr. Mudd was not hanged. He was released later... Pardoned by, I think it was Andrew Jackson himself, the vice president who became president, pardoned him later because he was a doctor. He didn't know. Okay, he had some sympathies, but you know, there's the Hippocratic oath that you do all that Correct. stuff. So, interestingly, finally, three months after the assassination, the U.S. Secret Service was formed. Its task to protect the president, but also to deal with counterfeit money, which is what they mainly did in the beginning. So finally, 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 they have a secret service. To protect the president. To protect the president, a proper federal agency
2: to do stuff, to take care of things. So you're saying that if it wouldn't have been assassinated, we would have still lived without a <laughs> an agency? I don't know, but maybe it would have taken longer. Who knows? It would have taken longer, for sure.
1: Our old friend Pinkerton, who prevented the Baltimore plot, wrote, If only I had been there to protect him, as I had done before. And our good friend, Lemon, Lincoln's friend, revealed that before he left to Richmond, where he was assigned instead of being with Lincoln at that night, he had implored Lincoln, do not go out at night after I'm gone, particularly to the theater. Guess he had a gut feeling, or maybe this was writing in hindsight. If Lemon was there, who knows what would have happened? He certainly was a devoted bodyguard to Lincoln. In fact, it was said that he would go every night to the White House and patrol the grounds, all on his own volition one night even wrapping himself in a cloak and lying down to sleep in front of Lincoln's bedroom. He even later reversed his denial of the Baltimore plot, writing, It is now an acknowledged fact that there was never a moment from the day he crossed the Maryland line up until the time of his assassination that he was not in danger of death by violence and that his life was spared until the night of the 14th of April, 1865, only through the ceaseless and watchful care of the gods thrown around him, him being one of them.
2: And those are the six assassinations. What do you think? What are the lessons to be learned? Well, one, obviously now looking at it in hindsight, it's, diff- it's, it's easy to say. You need to have a person like a president of the United States or someone who's nominated to be the president of the United States. It's proper protection. It wasn't there the, at the time. He had to rely on private enterprises or private people. Or it's his friend like Lemon. Or his friend like Lemon. So obviously that's that's a lesson that was learned later on and as you said 3 months later they established the secret service because they realized they needed something more profound. The other thing is yes you have a secret service but there's one thing to protect the other thing is collect intelligence and information. And that's two different things. One is but you can't do it without information and intelligence. So someone you have to build a, an organization that would be the FBI for internal the FBI. threats. The, in that, the United that, States. Yes. And you have to have an agency who is able to collect this information and make sense of it. Now, if you look at all the threats that he had, the only time they had information that something was going to happen was the Baltimore. Because the railroad, because he was worried about his interest, because as a private businessman, he didn't want something to go wrong with his railroad. And that's why he decided, took the initiative to find out if there's going to be something To go against him, Mm. he didn't do it to protect the president. He did it to protect Israel. Well, it was then he when he realized that because of the president traveling on this coincided with his interests. Then he decided to do something about it, and that was the only time that in all these six assassinations that there was information before then to do something. From all the other six, the other five, it was or only false or after the fact or was or was not. But it wasn't something that the president could react. So if we're looking about how the president reacted to these threats, he needed the proof. He, he wasn't willing to just say, okay. Well, he was in denial all the time, even after
1: the fact. He didn't want the, the word getting out. He didn't want to live in this sense of
2: fear. But if you're looking at today's world, you need the proof. And the presidents or the leaders, they they want to get close to their people. They want to get close to their voters. They feel the need to to be close to the people who voted them, or not to show their cowards. And to show them that they have to change their routine is very difficult. And this is a lesson that we all have to remember, that you have to bring more proof, and you have to Make sure that when you come to the leader, you come with a solution as well, not just with a problem. You come, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get you from A to B. Which is what Pinkerton did. That's what he did. He didn't say, okay, we have a problem and uh, cancel your arrival or we don't know what to do. He said, okay, this is how we're going to solve it. Now that's very important as well. Not only to come with the the problem, but to To come come with with the solutions. solutions. The other other plots, if you look at it from, from the president's point of view, he had nothing, he didn't know in advance anything about it. In the in the third plot, I think it was about the the shooting of his old uh, Abe, uh, old Abe yeah. the thing they did immediately after, that, he stopped riding alone. So he, they did learn that this is no good and they did something about it. So they got lucky there. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said earlier, sometimes you're in denial about how much your own people will go against you. Your enemies, you expect them to do it. You expect your enemy, if you're fighting a war, your enemy, you're looking at what he's doing, you're putting all your emphasis on it, you're putting your spies, you're putting your intelligence agencies, you're looking very hard to find out what they're trying to do. They're going to go against you. But we're a little bit reluctant to do the same things about your own people. And where, does, uh, where do you draw the line? Because or you become a totalitarian country that goes against your people and you don't want that. Or you're completely free and then that goes against the interests of the country. So every country has to find its own Borderline. How much? Own their own path. What is what is right for them? From the point of view of how much are they allowing the government to interfere with what goes on and eardropping to the people and what's happening? And and of course every country takes it in a different way. But again, it doesn't help if you don't have an organization or a service that can look at all this information and make decisions on it. And having the information and having it in different organizations doesn't help either because there's no one that looks at the big picture. And that was one of the problems if you look at 9-11 and why they had to build up a new organization or or different discipline to make sure that information is shared by everyone. Sharing information
1: is a big thing.
2: Yes. Between agencies, between nations. Yes, yes. But if you're looking at it from the point of view of, okay, there are people, there are sympathizers. Did they do anything about them? No, because… One, it wasn't interesting for everyone to do it. And second, they had other things to deal with, and probably no one thought they had to do it. What uh, we look about Booth and the assassination, what was interesting for me was that he knew exactly where to go when he looked sympathizers. He didn't just, except for one or two times that randomly he went upon someone, he knew where there was a doctor. It wasn't like, okay, yellow pages, where's the doctor, where's the nearest doctor, where's the doctor that we can yeah, it help It was on.
1: known who was a sympathizer. So and it was known. The network was so everything, set up. Yeah. So he
2: already... So although we only see part of the what he planned, because he had a horse, he had people, he had organized things, he he already knew more or less where he wanted to go or what he wanted well, to bear do. bear in
1: mind, he had toured the country as an actor, and so he had been in all these different towns and probably knew this guy was this and that guy was that. Well,
2: we don't know exactly, but I found that interesting that he knew exactly where he wanted to go and who he wanted to go upon, and that they were not, not aware of it in advance, mm-hmm. as far as we understand, because... Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he wasn't. He didn't know he was going to be injured. He didn't know he was going to need I mean, the service he, of a doctor. Well,
2: uh, except for the doctor, he would have. He knew he would have needed some symp- sympathizers to go there and, and do something. So, again, if you're looking at from a from a plan, every plan that you do, one of the major things you plan is your escape route, and sometimes you invest more time on your escape route than on the plan itself. Sometimes, unless it's, well,
1: most times, it's easier to get
2: in than out, right? Exactly, and then you have to make a decision. If you, that's why suicide is. Um, it t- takes away all your necessity to plan your escape route. makes it it's much easier. easier. Much easier. You come, you blow yourself up, you're gone. Thank you very much. You go wherever you go, wherever your religion is. Hopefully, it doesn't happen. I mean, from our point of view, we are able to prevent it. Yes. But from the planning point of view, it's very, very difficult when you want to come out of a place alive. A lot of the, you should understand, a lot of the operations that you plan, a lot of them fall because if you want to get the person alive and you feel that it's not possible, you don't execute them. Yeah, and getting out alive is the tricky getting one. alive and and having the right setup to do it. So, a lot of uh, emphasis is put on on that. And here again, we he had a someone waiting for me. He had a cache of of weapons. He had a horse. Was it one horse? We don't know. There were two of them riding. There were probably two horses. Maybe it should have been four horses because there were four of them, right? But well, that's the old
1: Mongol tactic. They would uh, a Mongol archer would ride with like five or six horses. With them, so they would yes. fire, 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 then switch horse, keep on firing. Yes. And that, that the enemies thought they just had endless strength and stamina. Yes. To switch horses, yeah. but it,
2: we don't know there were four horses there because there were four conspirators, right? Yeah, but we don't know. But that that was arranged, I suppose, mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of and, and he did it he, on the fly. Yeah, so he didn't have everything organized. So,
1: well, I, I was going to say that the most challenging thing, as you're saying, is obviously if someone doesn't care about living, that's a very challenging thing to deal with. But also, if it's a spur-of-the-moment decision, like with Booth, that morning, he decided it was going to happen. Those are the most difficult things to prevent, right? Impulsive action, almost impossible to prevent because you have no information about it. Even if you have the best intelligence networks, how quickly can the information relay? Now, okay, if you're tapping someone's phone and that morning, they say, I'm going to kill this person, okay, okay. But then that information needs to go to that person's boss, and that person's boss needs to approve it to this, and then you to do a plan, and by the time it happens, it happens. So, impulsive decision,
2: very difficult. Again, it's easier that we discussed it, but I'll 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 make it just make a point here that when something is organized, it's easier to foil. When something is, um, someone gets up in the morning and decides to do something like a lone wolf, much more difficult to foil and to stop it because you don't have the information that gives you the opportunity to do things. And if you look at all the, the assassinations, that's why when we looked at number five, that was more organized. That's why I have my queries about if if they knew something about it, because there was maybe opportunities to get more information. And the others, very difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the Pinkerton one, they obviously, they had more information on. Yes. Okay. And the, the, the shot at the outside of the old soldier's home, whether it was planned or not, we don't know who was it. A lone wolf, maybe it was a hunter, like Lincoln said, maybe it was Booth, but individual actors are very difficult to identify, I suppose. I and mean, we talked about that Booth would have a, a profile built up on him today if that was happening. But what about this guard? I mean, certainly there would have been vetting. Like why assign this police officer who was such a a slob? I mean, you'd think you get someone
2: else. Anyone else. No? No. As I said, you know, in the White House, you don't even know if there was a protection in the White House. Yeah. The president was walking and speaking to people. They didn't even check the people when they came into the White House, probably. Well, there were no metal detectors, that's no, for sure. there were no metal detectors. And, and so they didn't think in those terms in those days. Upon Lincoln's death, the famous poet Walt
1: Whitman wrote the following to eulogize him. This dust was once the man, gentle plain, just, and resolute, under whose cautious hand against the foulest crime in history known in any land or age was saved the union of these states. Frederick Douglass also said the following words. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It was a new crime, a pure act of malice. No purpose of the rebellion was to be served by it. It was the simple gratification of a hell-black spirit of revenge but it has done good after all it has filled the country with a deep abhorrence of slavery and a deeper love for the great liberator had abraham lincoln died from any of the numerous ills to which flesh is heir had he reached that good old age of which his vigorous constitution and his temperate habits gave promise had he been permitted to see the end of his great work had the solemn curtain of death come down but gradually, we should still have been smitten with a heavy grief and treasured his name lovingly. But dying as he did, by the red hand of violence, killed, assassinated, taken off without warning, not because of personal hate, for no man who knew Abraham Lincoln could hate him. Because of his fidelity to union and liberty, he is doubly dear to us and his memory will be precious forever. As we've said, assassinating someone often makes their memory live on. In Abraham Lincoln's case,
2: he was a great man before then and his, the way he died made him even a greater man and go down in history as one of the greatest.
1: Now I'll leave you now with Lincoln's words. In the end, it is not the years of your life that count, but the life In your years. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, make those years count. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production, with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message, and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.